Welcome. You're listening to Season 2 of But Seriously, What is Engineering? A podcast series from the University of Queensland where we explore all corners of engineering. We'll be covering a range of specialisations and exciting engineering careers through our special guests with an aim to open your eyes to just one more part of the wide world of engineering by the time this episode is finished. Spoiler alert, it's not just about bridges and buildings. This episode is hosted by two of the University of Queensland's Women in Engineering student leaders. Hi, my name is Sophie. I'm in my fourth year studying a Bachelor of Engineering and Integrated Masters of Engineering, majoring in software. My name is Asandi and I'm in my third year of studying a Bachelor of Engineering, majoring in Electrical and minoring in Data Science. So our guest today has a passion for supporting and inspiring women into engineering careers and we are so excited to speak with her. Today we'll be talking to Shivani Gupta. Shivani moved from India to Australia at the age of 11. She graduated with a double degree in electrical and electronic engineering, closely followed by completing an MBA. After a life-changing trip to Nepal, Shivani started her own business and the accolades closely followed. Shivani won the Telstra Business Women's Award, EY Award, and is an honorary member of the Golden Key Society. She has run several million dollar businesses, is an author of eight books, and has spoken to over 150,000 people globally across 18 countries, all driven by her passion for supporting girls and women in engineering their own career and confidence. Welcome to the podcast, Shivani. We're so excited to have you on the podcast today and for you to share our passion for supporting girls and women in engineering. We'd like to first go back to when you first discovered your interest for engineering. So can you tell us a little bit about what first drew you to study engineering in the first place? I was really lucky that um, despite growing up in India, it was really interesting having a grandfather who was very supportive of girls' education. And my father, when we moved to Australia, I was 11 years of age. And if you ask my dad today, you know, why did you move to Australia? He will very quickly answer that and say, so that Shivani could have the same rights to education as me, as her brother, as her uncles and her cousins. And so I was very lucky that the two men um, who were very influential in my life were both engineers. So my grandfather's an engineer, my dad's a mechanical engineer. And so that certainly, even without even thinking about what career I was going to do, certainly from a very early age had that influence. Not that they were ever trying to influence me into, into being an engineer, but uh, as I discovered that law was going to be really difficult, particularly growing up in a small country town in South Australia at the time and doing my work experience there, my dad said, well, why don't you do some work experience here? And to be honest with you, I got lured by the free meals at the cafeteria that he <laughs> promised to have with me in that whole week of work experience. And I absolutely fell in love with it. I loved how practical it was. I'm quite a practical person and love the hands-on. And again, you know, inspired by two pretty amazing men in my life. Do you think that you would ever have considered moving to Australia or even studying engineering if you hadn't had those influences? Yeah, that's a really good question. I'm not sure. I know that there was a lot of pressure. I have a family full of doctors and, you know, good Indian families are very into education anyway. So I think there was never a pressure of doing engineering, but there was absolutely a lot of pressure to do well absolutely go to uni um, and do your best. Like, you know, my parents still talk about that. I'm in my 40s and they still talk about that and doing your best doesn't matter what the outcome is. If I'd stayed in India, I'm not sure. I know that a lot of my family, despite having very good education, the girls in my family were married fairly young and they had babies very young. I think the opportunities I've had to chart my own path 
in terms of what I studied, how I studied, where I studied, uh, what I wanted to do following my studies, I'm not sure I would have had those same opportunities because even though my parents are fairly liberal, there's still a lot of pressure in, you know, my dad's the youngest of nine kids, my mum's the middle, and so there's a lot of that family pressure in terms of what the family expects you to do as well. So I definitely don't think that some of the choices I've made, not only around my career, but, uh, you know, who I've married. I ended up marrying an Australian. That's a whole new story. It might need a whole new podcast. Um, <laughs> maybe not for, for this particular one. Um, there's no way that I would have had those opportunities um, in India. You graduated with a double degree in electrical and electronic engineering before then going on to complete your MBA. So I was just wondering if you could tell us a little bit about your studies and what guided your decision to study I, at the time, had looked up, you know, where there were shortages of really good engineers. Um, I was quite interested in the electronics part of it and there was a double degree being offered. My dad's a mechanical engineer and a part of me didn't want to do mechanical engineering. Uh, not because I'm not inspired by him, but I wanted to do something a little bit different. So the electronics part particularly interested me. There was there's gaps for engineers everywhere, you know, even now. Um, there's always been that global shortage of um, having um, enough qualified engineers, particularly women engineers, um, that we can get into a little bit later. So I was probably influenced more by the electronics part, but then there was a double degree on offer. And I'm one of those nutty people that I just think, well, you know, if you're gonna go, let's go really hard. Mm -hmm. Just the, that combination of having that availability, you know, was pretty amazing. I'd also applied for a scholarship. The scholarship paid for some of my schooling for my university, but also gave me some work experience at the end of each year. Um, so, uh, you know, at the end of year, first, second and third year, there was no guarantees that work will be offered to you, but certainly there's some paid work um, in engineering departments. And so that also really excited me and they were funding the electrical electronic double degree. Cool. So that also influenced my decision to, to go down that path. I, I speak to people now and I work with leaders now that say, oh, you know, it's this young generation. It's all these millennials that want everything done by like mm -hmm. tomorrow. They haven't worked enough in the workplace and all they want to do is be CEO. I was like, uh, yeah, and <laughs> I was exactly like that. And I was a typical millennial who wanted to be CEO very, very fast. Um, and was just really driven to say, well, why waste, you know, 15 years at this level before doing an MBA? Yeah, of course. So, yeah, um, not sure all my reasons were good in hindsight, but at the <laughs> time I was like, yeah, we're going to get into leadership roles and then into a CEO role and I need my MBA to do it. Let's go. So we talked a little bit about your life-changing trip to Nepal. Can you tell us a little bit more about how that trip inspired you to start your own business? Having grown up in India, I expected Nepal to be very similar to India and what I discovered on that trip was that it wasn't. And I had been working um, in a really big corporate role. So by the time I got to 27, I had already uh, been working in leadership roles and I got offered this job that I never thought I would get. And all of a sudden I was in this really senior leadership role that I had been doing for three years. And it was amazing. I got to travel the world, but I was working about 80 hours a week. I felt a bit burnt out. You know, I'd been go, go, go all through my teens and all through my 20s. I was not in a very happy relationship at the time. And it was about September 11 when, you know, um, the tragedy happened in the US with the Twin Towers and the planes going in. And in Nepal, the royal Nepalese family had just been slain, just following that, uh, one of the cousins. And so there was a lot of disruption happening in the world around travel and a lot of people were really worried. And I had cancelled my trip to Nepal twice already. 
And I went, oh my God, for work. I'm like, I'm just so, so sick of counselling it. So I rang the Australian authorities and they said it was safe to travel. Anyway, so I went and when I got there, I had about a month there. And when I got there, nobody else was on the tour. I was the only person. So had like my own Sherpa and my own cook and my own guide. But the beauty of that was that I could say, look, could we do for walking for a couple of hours and could we stop at this village? And, and for the first time in my life, I noticed that I had time to be silent. You know, my life was really busy. It was full of a lot of social things, a lot of full of study and work and travel. And here I am walking, trekking through Nepal, which is pretty poor country. And I was carrying this little bag of barley sugars um, and every village that we landed in, you know, little kids would run up to me and I'd unpack my backpack and give them a barley sugar. And I'll never forget this one particular day. I, we were in this village. I don't remember the name of the village, but this little boy came up and ran up to me and he was so beautiful. Um, you know, if I close my eyes, I can always see his face. He was about five and with this beautiful wide teeth and the smile. And he said, hello. And so I undid my backpack and I gave him a little barley sugar. Then his little sister ran up, who was super cute as well. And I thought, oh, yeah, she's going to ask me for a for a lolly. And she didn't ask me. And he um, took out half his lolly, bit it and gave half of it to her. And then he sucked on his and then he put it into a wrapper and put it into his pocket. I remember at that time I, I had tears streaming down my face and I just remember thinking, I don't know why these people are so content when they have so little. And I don't understand why I have so much and I feel so discontent in my life. Like I've got my degrees, I'm in Nepal, I've got a house, I've, got a, I've bought a house, I've got a car, I live on the right side of town, but I feel so discontent at some level. And so that trip, um, and I had many more instances and experiences like the one I had with this little boy um, and his sister that really got me thinking it really shook me to my core. I really started to wonder what life was all about. And, you know, people talk about in leadership this Maslow's hierarchy of needs, that you need your basic needs met and then you get to self-actualisation. And I remember if I could do anything, like what would I really want to do? And for me, it wasn't working in the corporate space. I wanted to work with a variety of companies, variety of leaders. I wanted to do some charity work but I really didn't have the guts to do that. So I went to Nepal and to cut the story short, I came back and within a week, I resigned from my corporate job and I resigned from my relationship. And I started to make changes in terms of what I really wanted to do and live a bit differently. Yeah, and I always say to people, look, you don't have to go to Nepal or, you know, climb mountains, <laughs> yeah, but, but finding moments of silence are really important. Like I've noticed I've made the most major changes when I've had space, when I've created space yeah. in my life. It wasn't easy and people think, oh, that's great. And, you know, now you've been running your business for a while. Nobody rang me for the first month. I cried at my desk every day. I was like, you're an idiot, Shivani. You have made, uh, you've just had an early midlife crisis. You've just resigned from this amazing job. My parents are like, what is she doing? Mm. And uh, I've got girlfriends going, what are you, like, you, do you know what you're doing? I'm like, not really. Um, so it wasn't all rosy, right? It wasn't all easy. It yeah. sounds all, oh, how wonderful you left and you started up your own business. I had no idea what I was doing. You know, it's a bit like when you step out of, um, I remember being an engineer and rocking up to my first day and thinking I knew all of this stuff and I knew nothing practical. Mm -hmm. I knew a lot of theory and then I got there and I was supervising all these people and I was like I have no idea what I'm doing here <laughs> and I now mentor uh, women for a living um, as one of my businesses and 
I, in, I mentored somebody last week. She is a CEO. She is in her early 60s and she will talk to you about the imposter syndrome. Mm. So one of the things we're working on is her imposter syndrome. I don't think it ever goes away. I think it stays with us. And sometimes I think when it debilitates us as women leaders, um, I think that's really that's a really negative impact, right, that imposter syndrome can have. But I think it can also have some really good positive impacts as long as it's not running us. You know, like I remember, um, I, I don't remember the speaker, <clears throat> it was in the US, and I remember her saying, your ego is like a dog on a leash. And I remember her saying that if you've got a massive Great Dane who is so strong that it's pulling you, then your ego and your imposter syndrome is running you. She said, but if you can kind of visualise your imposter syndrome or your ego to be a cute little puppy <laughs> and it's on a leash, it thinks it's running the show, but you're kind of running the show. Um, and I've always remembered that analogy because I just think that we all have it and I think it makes, I know my imposter syndrome, which I, it's so big, you wouldn't think it is, but it's massive. At the moment, particularly selling, like my, my brain's going, so what are you going to do now? Six months? Are you nuts? Like, you'll be bored. Um, what are you, this is not a good role model. Like, you don't deserve this. You don't deserve to take six months off. And it's still happening, right, despite everything. So I think managing it is the key. Not having it, I don't think is possible. I have an experience not, mm-hmm. not being able to... Just got to learn to live with it. Yeah, well, it was one of my friends it. said, if you've lost your, your crazy voice, like, you probably have gone crazy. I'm like, <laughs> oh, okay, that's interesting. That's actually really good advice about how you don't need to completely push it away because I agree with you, Sophie. Like, I have imposter syndrome when I do, like, certain, like, vacation work and stuff like that. And then I've always thought I need to just, like, eliminate it, sort of get on part of people that don't seem like they have it. But then I think what you were saying about how you can have it, just, like, learn to go around it. That's a really yeah, good point. Yeah, uh, as long as you're running it. Right. Yeah. I, th- I think probably the simplest way is like it's, it's the same with your ego. You know, my, I've got a big ego. But I think you need a good ego, healthy <laughs> ego to be successful. But then if your ego is running you, then it's you're running it for wrong reasons yeah. and you're trying to achieve things for the wrong reasons, which I've been on that side as well. I mean, for, for me, you know, if you asked me 10 years ago, I would have given you a list of, you know, one of the youngest. I was the, one of the youngest executives in my team. Um, most of the executives I had who were my colleagues were at least 20 years older than me. Um, I was the youngest people, you know, to finish that. So I'd give you, I'd give you a different list of accolades. I think now if you say to me, you know, what are some of your highlights? I love the aha moments that people have when I'm mentoring them. And, you know, I always say I do maybe three to five percent. I maybe, you know, create the drops and then they create the ripples around that. So I love when people go, oh, my goodness, so I've got this behaviour as a result of um, this particular thing that happened or helping people unlock some of their patterns. I think um, being a mum um, has been an absolute highlight and low light uh, at times <laughs> as well. Um, certainly not what it's made out to be to women. Uh, the, the story doesn't work really well. Not that I would ever change it for the world. Um, but I think for me to be able to manage my kids, like most of my friends I know, or mo- certainly most a lot of my family in India, once they have kids, They've then given up a lot of the times on their careers. And so for me to be able to continue to work, um, you know, I went back to work after six weeks of having babies, both babies, and it wasn't because I was scared or I was fearful. I really love work. And, you know, I always look at work, um, whether it's in my own business or in the corporate world, as a privilege. And I think that sometimes people go, oh, just, you know, it pays the mortgage. I'm like, you're in the wrong profession here. You're in the wrong job if you feel that. And so to me, just being able to work, 
and being able to work through having kids and my kids seeing me run a multitude of businesses. I've failed one particular business that was a complete disaster and lost some money in it. Others have been really successful. You know, when we get around to the dinner table at night, uh, we do uh, the, the highlights and your lowlights of your day and everybody has to give a bit of an update at dinner every night. And just those conversations and being able to guide my son and knowing that he doesn't have a typical Indian mum who's, you know, going to meet every beck and call of his, which I don't and refuse to, including making him breakfast this morning. And, um, and a daughter to go, yeah, you can run your own businesses or you can work or you can work for other people. So, so my, my highlights now become the, the really little moments, I think. I now get to work when I want, the days I want, the hours I want, with who I want. Freedom is a really important word in my life. And that's one of the reasons I stepped into my own business was I wanted to do whatever I wanted. And if I didn't want to work, if I want to give away a day of my work for charity, well, nobody's going to say, well, Shivani, sorry, you can't do that. Um, or if I want to give away 10% of my profits, which we've been doing for about a decade, to certain causes to educate girls in third world countries, well, I do whatever I like. And so that freedom word is really important for me in terms of a career highlight and creating a life that I can work the, um, and build my family into it as well. Going back to one of your achievements now, as we <laughs> talked about in your introduction, you wrote eight books and you've spoken to over 150,000 people globally in 18 countries. Can you tell us a little bit about these achievements and the impact that they have been able to have on people around the world? Yeah, look, that's really interesting. The first um, book that I wrote, I wanted to talk about that you have to find your passions and finding passion in your work is so crucial to your life. A lot of studies, the Gallup survey, and a number of them talk about that globally, around 87% of people are dispassionate about their work. That's most of us. And I didn't want to be part of that statistic. So part of that first book was interviewing people that had made changes in their careers and sharing my journey of you know Nepal and changing my career and doing that. And I'm not a writer. You know, I remember in my MBA having a very big debate with one of my professors who didn't understand why I dot pointed everything. I'm like, I don't understand. If I can't, if, well, I kind of just dot pointed. It gives you the, the essence. I've done the study and the homework. And I remember having this big debate with him saying, can you just accept that? And he's like, no, you need to put it in essay format. I was like, oh my goodness. So I felt um, from that experience that I was never a very good writer, but I had a story to tell and I had thoughts and my views and I wanted them heard um, or I wanted them debated. Like I didn't expect everybody to agree with that. I was speaking to somebody and they're like, Shivani, you should write a book. I'm like, oh, I'm not a writer. And I talked about this MBA experience with this professor. And um, he shared with me how he did his books. And I'm so happy to share that because I just think more people should be writing books about whatever they want to talk about. And uh, he said, well, why don't you audio it? Like, why don't you literally record it? Because you can talk to the cows come home, Shivani, which I can. And then why don't you just literally upload it, get it transcribed? It sounds way too easy. And uh, so I did that. The first couple of versions were terrible. But then I just found an editor that just helped me edit it and just clean up the sharp edges on it. I couldn't believe that you could do that. I was like, oh, wow. So I could like talk through it. <laughs> Somebody types it out and then there's a draft of your book. So that's how I've written all of the books. Wow. I've actually written them by just saying, well, what's the message? What's the stories? What are the chapters? What do I want to speak about? I wanted um, accessibility. So if somebody, for example, says, look, Shivani, I can't hire you as a mentor, they can read one of the books. 
And you know, now I've made them even cheaper. So they're like literally $10 and we donate all of the money that comes from the downloads into some charity work. And I thought that that would be a great way, way to partly fund some of the things I wanted to fund when I wasn't earning much money and also get my voice across. And also, you know, what if I don't want to travel to China while I've got a one-year-old? What if I didn't want to do that and to have that freedom? And so just to have your voice heard and then a Chinese um, publisher picked it up and they translated it into Mandarin and got that out. You know, that's amazing. And I've had emails over the years. And so I think there's this impact that you can have on people that you don't even realise. Um, I'm going back, I've noticed I'm going back and rereading a book at the moment. And I read that about five years ago and I'm reading it with completely different perspective. And I'm going, wow, like, so people can read something that you've just written a moment in time. Like I look at some of my books now and go, oh my God, what were you thinking? <laughs> because, you know, I look at that as somebody who's five years or 10 years older with different wisdom and hopefully different experiences now. Whereas that was a moment in time that you write it and you put it out into the world. But the fact that it's helping people, the fact that somebody's read that, I've had a lot of people that have read some of my books and said, oh, I just wanted to let you know I've quit my job. I'm like, okay, that was not the idea <laughs> that you quit your job. Hopefully you've done a plan and you've done a budget and you're going to be able to manage that in a sustainable way. And then people have, you know, started up their own businesses. So I, I love those stories of people that they've read something they've got inspired by, something that was either intentional by me or even unintentional by me, but they've given it some meaning in their own lives and some context in their own lives. And then they've made a decision. They've made a change for the better they've done something with it. And so when people take that, you know, couple of minutes to let me know that I have a feel good folder. So when I'm having a really crappy day at work, which happens, and um, I go to my feel good folder, I'm like, okay, I had this impact, come on, get your ass <laughs> into gear, keep going. And yeah, yeah. yeah that's so cool. it's, um, it's, a, it's a really great thing, which I didn't even realise when I first started doing it. I'm sure that would be more rewarding finding out the impact you've had on people that you didn't intend to have versus what you did because it's a nice unexpected surprise, I guess. And it's so beautiful. And the lady that printed my book in China um, quit her job after reading the book. I've still got that email and it's just beautiful. She's such funny. I just felt like, you know, I just keep doing these jobs um, and I keep helping me make people money. And I realised when I read that I was printing a book, I took it home and I read it. And I've just decided to go and set up my own business. So she was, we lost a printer, which wasn't great. But the fact that um, she made that decision and quit um, working for somebody else and started up her own business, I was like, oh my God, this is amazing. You know, somebody in China, this woman that now feels more empowered by that. So that made my week when I read that, when I got that email. That's so cool. It's amazing. What advice would you give to young females that might be even considering a career in engineering? Might be in high school, haven't even, haven't even considered it or might just be starting to, what advice would you give them? Yeah, that's such a good question. Um, I'd probably have quite a bit to, to share. I think the first thing is there's still, engineering still sometimes gets a bit of a bad rap, right? Um, why do you want to do that? You know, it's a bit butchy. What will you get out of that? Um, there's so much math, there's so much science. I mean, I would say, you know, it doesn't matter whether you're not great at maths, you can always get better at different things that you do. Have a go at it. I think the second thing that we spoke about with the imposter syndrome is everybody has the imposter syndrome. You are not unique. Um, don't compare yourself to other women, other men, you know, what you're wearing. Just don't change who you are because you're stepping into steel, which is a very masculine world. 
and the learnings that you'll have, you know, stick with your femininity. I didn't do that very well. I try to be one of the boys um, because I wanted to fit in and be liked and be respected, um, both while I was starting, but also when I started my corporate career. And I would just say, do stick with your femininity. I think women, you actually have more to offer engineering than engineering has to offer you. Um, I think that the female leaders that have studied, worked in engineering or still work in engineering that I've had the privilege to work with are extraordinary leaders. Extraordinary, because they have these beautiful innate intuition and feminine leadership, but they have these amazing technical skills that they've gathered and they're able to lead people, whatever roles that they do, in a very different, different way. And so there is no way that I would be uh, at the level I'm at, there's no way that I'd be able to run several million dollar businesses if I hadn't studied engineering. And people often think, did you feel like that, that was a waste? I'm like, no, that was, that was the gift, you know, the gift of structure, the gift of studying, you know, all the contact hours that we do. Oh my goodness, like how many contact hours do engineers <laughs> do compared to some of my friends who I used to make fun of at school, you know, at, at uni. Like this, the ability to be able to learn and grow and apply it, you're never ever gonna lose. So if you're thinking about it, do it. If you're doing it and you're thinking of quitting, which I remember thinking in my third year, and my dad said, Shivani, you've got to finish it. I know it's third year's really hard. You've got to keep going and you've got to finish it. You've got to give it your best. Um, you'll never, ever lose those skills, whether you stay in working as an engineer or not. Just going back to when you were talking about how you were, were often the youngest by 20 years um, in the room full of like corporate executives and how you're also a woman and a person of colour. What does diversity in engineering mean to you? I think diversity is essential in the success of individuals, but also organisations. I mean, there is so much data and research that's now talking about that more uh, females in on boards and in executive roles ends up adding more money to the bottom line. It's, it's just clear. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people have researched it and organisations have researched it. Diversity, I think, you know, sometimes people say to me, well, you know, we'd love for you, for example, I've been invited to, to be on a couple of boards, but I've been asked to go on to them because I'm female and not because I'm brown. And I haven't taken that very well to that. But to me, diversity is more than gender and it's more than colour. I think diversity is also a lot about diversity in thinking. So we need to have people that have got different cultural backgrounds. We need to have people that are different age groups. We need to have people that are female and male and other genders. You know, I think that we need to, and we know that when teams, when organisations, when boards um, have people with diversity in thinking and diversity in all those different aspects, they perform better. Because when people with different melting pots come in together, different experiences come in together, they will find more innovation, they'll find more solutions, um, they will do things, you know, better. And so I'm a big believer in diversity. I think it's a conversation People say, you know, do you think we need to have it? That conversation is over. Like if you're still having that conversation in an organisation, I'm like, you are 10 years behind. The organisations that are leading edge think about diversity. They have diversity officers. They have diversity built into their culture at the executive and board level. And they are constantly thinking about how to create more diversity in their workplace to get better results. Big, big one on that. And and I think that the companies that aren't thinking about it are really behind where we'll start to you know, see them perform less or even fall away in the future. That was amazing. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today, Shivani. I really, really enjoyed chatting to you. It was a pleasure to hear all your insights. 
Oh, thank you for having me and all the best to both of you as you finish uni and um, get on to that next chapter if you like. Thank you. Don't forget to subscribe or follow this podcast to stay up to date with our current episodes as they are released for season two.